Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Renewal Church. Whether you've been with us uh, just a few times or this is your first time, or maybe you've been with us here at Renewal for years, we're glad that you're joining us this morning. You may not be aware, but um, this morning is actually what's called Reformation Sunday. Uh, it's the day where we as Protestant churches celebrate the, the doctrines of grace that were recovered during the Reformation. It was actually on October 31st, 1517, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses uh, to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, uh, kicking off the Reformation. Uh, so it's on uh, this Sunday that I'm grateful to be part of a community of Jesus and just revel in the truth of the gospel uh, with you all this morning. So this Sunday we come uh, continuing our fall sermon series in the book of Philippians, and we're calling it Philippians, Resilient Joy and Reconciling Love. Uh, this morning we'll be focusing particularly on that reconciling love uh, part of that. We're picking up the part of the letter where Paul is instructing his old friends at uh, Philippi about how to live together, how to be kingdom citizens together in community in a manner worthy of the gospel. In our passage this morning, Paul gives some real practical instruction uh, that applied to that original Philippian community uh, but also applies to us here at Renewal today. So with that being said, would you join me in a word of prayer as we come to the Lord, asking to open the eyes of our hearts this morning uh, as we come to his word. Uh, would you pray with me? Almighty God, in you are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open up our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word this morning and Give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom and peace and wholeness. When we fail to keep your law, point us again to your son Jesus, who fulfilled the law perfectly on our behalf. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts and illuminate our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that, our, that as your word is proclaimed this morning, may we hear it with joy and put it into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. So what's your strategy in dealing with anxiety and stress? Every era in your life, whether you're a child or you're a teenager or you're an adult, each of those different eras in your life, there is a certain amount of stress and anxiety, different problems, different issues. But as you grow older, part of growing up, you begin to realize that adulting uh, is realizing that the stuff that you have to worry about in life only increases as you get older. There's more and more responsibilities, more and more stressors, and more and more things that can give you anxiety. As you get older into adulthood, life throws one new thing after another at you, and that's all as your body continues to deteriorate. And so inevitably, this new responsibilities and stress will cause anxiety. Uh, there can be so much responsibility that can at times just feel overwhelming. And it's in this overwhelmingness of it all that we typically aren't very good about asking for help. 
We're not very good about asking our friends for help, our neighbors for help, our family for help, and we're certainly not very good at asking God for help. I'll be honest with you, there are seasons in my life where I hate to pray. I hate to pray in private. I hate to pray in public. Uh, I hate to pray in meetings. I hate to pray as the token prayer before meals. There are just seasons where I don't feel like talking to God. I don't feel like asking for help. I like the idea of being self-sufficient. I'm pretty sure a, a pastor isn't supposed to say that, but that's where I am. There's an old story that illustrates this for me. Uh, here's the scene. There's a, a father and a son, and the father is lovingly watching over his son play in the sandbox. And he's seeing his son play, and, and the son finds a, a large, heavy rock, and the son's still fairly young and hasn't grown strong yet. And the son wants to take the rock and lift it out of the sandbox. So he tries with all his might to lift it, but he can't lift it. So he instead tries another strategy and he rolls it over to the side of the sandbox, trying to leverage it against the side. And he can't lift it out that way either. And the son gives up frustrated in getting the rock out of the sandbox. And the father, seeing all this, walks over to the son and asks, What's wrong, son? Can't you lift the rock out? The dad asks. No, dad, the boy said, I, I can't do it. And the dad asked, have you used all the strength that's available to you? Yes, daddy, it's just too heavy. No, you haven't, the father said. You haven't asked me to help you. Thankfully, this morning, in Paul's urging to his friends in Philippi, we have some very practical teachings on how we can deal with our broken relationships, our anxieties and fears, and our perpetual feelings towards prayerlessness, our penchant towards prayerlessness. We'll start with Paul encouraging two people who weren't getting along to agree in the Lord, and then we'll hear Paul teach about how to avoid being anxious in life, and then we'll finish up on what we should be putting our minds to. So in short, Paul tells Christians how to agree, rejoice, pray, think, and practice. We'll start this morning with Paul's admonition to agree in the Lord. This is in verses 2 and 3. It's the case of two women in the church at Philippi who are having a hard time getting along. Paul takes the unusual step to publicly name the two women as Eudea and Syntyche. He encourages them to agree in the Lord. More literally, he says, be of the same mind with one another. Such agreement doesn't mean necessarily uniformity, but rather a willingness to set aside personal agendas for the greater good and uniting around the gospel of Jesus so that the gospel and the kingdom of God can progress in the world. Paul, of course, has already written in this letter to not look after your own interests, but to look after the interests of others, to set aside uh, personal uh, agendas and willingness to sacrifice for others. And now he wants these two people, these two women who he's labored alongside with to do this very thing, to start being like Jesus by putting down their own desires for the sake of another. The, 
the conflict was especially distressing to Paul because, again, he knew these, these women very intimately. He worked alongside them in the gospel. He wants to see them uh, come together for the sake of the kingdom of God. And when he hears that they're not getting along, it's troubling. And one, one of Paul's strategies here in this letter to address the conflict between the two women is to call for help from someone who's on the ground at the church. Of course, Paul was under house arrest, so he couldn't be there in person. He needed someone there to be able to step in and help. And the person he calls on uh, is a person he calls uh, the true companion. Apparently, this was some kind of nickname that Paul had for somebody there at the church at Philippi. But regardless, everybody knew who Paul meant when he said, hey, you, true companion, come alongside these two women and, and help them to resolve this conflict that's happening. When conflict arises in the church, it's imperative for others to get involved. In the body of Christ, we need each other and we are also responsible for one another. Generally speaking, in the church, we can be tempted in one of two different directions. On one hand, we may be tempted to be busybodies and to stick our noses in places where it doesn't belong. On the other hand, we might be more tempted to avoid situations that are difficult and tension-filled when we actually should be intervening, when we should be sticking our nose in. I'm fairly new here at Renewal, but my instinct is that we as a church community, generally, not everybody, but generally, are probably more likely to avoid confrontational situations rather than be busybodies who are overly judgmental about things that, that don't matter. Culturally, I think that social media has made us confrontational and mean online, but in person often our first instinct is actually to avoid confrontation. We don't know how to do confrontation well anymore. If you've grown up in Philadelphia, though, your whole life, you, you may be a little bit more prone to confrontation. We, as Philadelphians, culturally are probably a little bit more aggressive in our confrontation. Me, at my worst, I tend to be the avoider, the one who tries to avoid the confrontation. But we should have enough gospel security to be able to jump into messy relational conflicts in the church. Sometimes it's a pastor or an elder. Sometimes it could be a community group leader or just a friend in the church. The point is, is that we need each other when it comes to conflict in the church. We need trusted third parties to come alongside those who are having a hard time getting along. Paul reminds those involved that our names, those of us who are Christians, are written in the book of life. And it's full of people who have been reconciled to God because of Jesus' death on the cross. So, therefore, because we are all have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, we should be able to be reconciled to one another. Our final resting place is with the Lord for all eternity, together, stuck with each other for all eternity. Therefore, now here on earth, we should be able to work together and get along and be on the same page because we all have common footing at the foot of the cross. A tangible outcome of being citizens of the kingdom of heaven 
is that we pursue reconciliation with one another when conflict arises in the body. We should be able to hug it out in the Lord. This isn't always quick. It's not always easy. Because the gospel brings together all kinds of people. Uh, People from different kinds of backgrounds and cultures and political persuasions. And the church is beautiful like that. It's supposed to be that way. But oftentimes, because people are people and we're sinful and we're different from one another, there's going to be infighting. There's going to be disagreement. I even think about the 12 disciples that Jesus gathered around himself. Among the 12 were Matthew, a tax collector, and also Simon, the zealot. Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been a Roman sympathizer, would have been a a Jewish man who worked in collaboration with Imperial Rome as the empire. Simon, on the other hand, Simon the Zealot, wanted to violently bring about the end of Roman oppression. He wanted to overthrow the government, not work alongside them. Somehow, Jesus brought these two men together from vastly different political persuasions under the same roof, so to speak. They were to be diverse, but yet not divided. And that takes a tremendous amount of love. This bringing together of Simon and Matthew as part of the Twelve would be something like taking the the most far-right political person that you know today and the most far-left political person that you know today and having them live together, sleep along beside each other, and work together for the kingdom of God for three years. When the church most looks and smells like Jesus is when she has people who are Uh, very different from each other, who shouldn't be able to get along, but are able to agree in the Lord. Very different people able to work together for the furthering of his kingdom. So part of our being citizen kingdom people is agreeing together to work together for the promotion and spread of the gospel, for the spread of the kingdom. Next, Paul moves on to something that we can all identify with in these crazy COVID times, and that's how to not be anxious. In verses 4 through 7, we have a series of staccato commands from Paul, continuing this theme of how do we live together as kingdom citizens? And we'll specifically focus on his command in verse 6. Look again with me if you have your Bibles at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If we left with just the first part of that verse, do not be anxious about anything, I think that would be discouraging. I think that would be too heavy of a load to bear. Okay, Paul, so I'm just supposed to live my life and to never be anxious about anything. But Paul doesn't leave us right there. Instead, he says to replace that anxiety with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The Christian defense against anxiety is actually prayer. The, the kind of prayer that both asks God for health, that, that supplication, and also is thankful for the things that God has given us. 
Pastor Scott Crosby is the lead pastor of Liberty Fairmount Church, another church in our presbytery here in Philadelphia. And Scott is a friend of mine, and he used to work uh, really closely with Pastor Tim Keller at Redeemer Church in Manhattan. He told me the story once of Pastor Keller uh, was sitting around in a, a group of pastors, and they were kind of awkwardly, this, this group of pastors who really didn't know each other were kind of awkwardly trying to get to know each other a little bit better. And they were asked to go around the circle and say what they like to do in their spare time and what they do to relax. Somebody said, I like to paint. Another pastor said, I like to play video games. Another said, cooking, I like to cook. Pastor Scott, now at Liberty, said, I like to play the guitar. It came to Pastor Keller, and he said, I pray. Everyone kind of groaned and wanted to punch him in the face. Uh, but I think there's a helpful lesson there. What do we do when we need to relax? Maybe prayer shouldn't be such a crazy answer. Maybe prayer shouldn't be a chore, and maybe it should be something that we love to do rather than sometimes hate to do. Paul says, instead of anxiety, pray. This, of course, is not meant to undermine the importance of going to see a therapist or taking med medication when anxiety becomes overwhelming and hurtful, but this is to say that our frontline defense against anxiety in a Christian's life ought to be praying to our good, good Father. Like verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul here uses military language as a metaphor to talk about the peace of God that is given when we pray. The guard there is the same kind of guard that soldiers do on a fortified wall. It's a guarding to keep the people inside the city safe and secure. Remember, Paul is under house arrest when he's writing this letter and would have, been, uh, would have had a member of the Imperial Guard, a soldier, posted right outside his door. I think he would have looked at that guard each night and thanked God for that guard. Even though that guard was keeping him under house arrest, he was also protecting Paul from those that wanted Paul dead. God's peace protects our hearts and minds from anxiety and from crippling fear, like a grizzled soldier that protects the people inside the city. If you want to be less anxious, if you want to know peace, a peace that is beyond human understanding, then pray asking for help and pray with thanksgiving. Tell God what you are thankful for. In doing so, his peace will protect your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. This is what is promised to us here in this passage. When I was in college, I had the unique opportunity to take a class on prayer. The professor was a longtime missionary who had spent many long, hard, even depressing years in Germany as a missionary in the 80s and 90s. And one of his assignments he framed as one of the ways that he fought off his own anxiety and depression being a missionary in Germany was to each week 
list out on paper 100 things that he was thankful for. So he had us do that as one of our assignments, was to keep a prayer journal. And before we could ask God in supplication for things, we had to list out things in our prayer journal that we were thankful for, at least 100 things each week. Before we could go to God, we had to say what we were thankful for. I realized in that assignment that subconsciously I had turned God into a cosmic genie in a bottle. There were, he was always there to fulfill my needs instead of me going to him with things that I was thankful for and worship and praise. We must make honest requests to God in our times of need, but we can't be, but that can't be the only time that we go to him in prayer. Going to him with our requests and also our thanksgivings will guard our hearts from being anxious. And Paul says this will actually, in the end, give us peace. That's beautiful, right? Don't we all want a little peace in our life right now? So as citizens of heaven, we are to first agree in the Lord, be of the same mind with one another. We're to avoid anxiety through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And finally, we now turn to our mindset, how we think, how we are supposed to think as Christians. And this is in verses 8 and 9. Paul, knowing that we spend our time, what we spend our time thinking on impacts every aspect of our lives. He writes in verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You don't need to be a, a Greek expert or a brilliant biblical exegete to get what Paul is driving at here. He gives this list of beautiful adjectives to uh, describe the kind of things that we should be thinking about. We should train our minds to think about that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely. These are the things that we should uh, be putting into our brains, that should be taking up space in our minds. The, this could be things like art or philosophy or God's creation or simple kindness between children. Maybe a graceful home run swing for those of us who are following the World Series or the, the smells of a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal. Uh, this could be justice found for an innocent convict being set free or a good book that is a balm to your soul right now. All these things and all that can be rightly called good and true in the world are gifts from God that point us to him. Augustine, an influential 5th century theologian, wrote beautifully about this in a prayer. He prayed, It's not physical beauty nor temporal glory nor the brightness of light so dear to earthly eyes, nor the sweet melodies of all kinds of songs, nor the gentle odor of flowers or ointments of perfume, nor manna, nor honey, nor limbs welcoming the embrace of the flesh. It is not these things I love when I love my God. Yet there is a light I love and a food and a kind of embrace when I love my God, a light, voice, odor, food, embrace of my innerness, where my soul is floodlit by light which space cannot contain, where there is sound that time cannot cease, where there is perfume which no breeze disperses, where there is taste for food no amount of eating can satisfy, where there is a 
a bond of union that no amount of my stomach being full can part. That is what I love when I love my God. And that beautiful prayer, Augustine is saying that we don't love beautiful things for them themselves. We love them because they point our hearts to God. There are truly lovely things in this life that are worth spending our time and our affections on. When our loves are rightly ordered, when we see all the beauty of creation around us through the rising sun of Jesus Christ, we can appreciate and meditate on all these good things around us because they point us to him. We have only so many minutes on this earth as people. The average person has about 40 million minutes of life. Why spend any of those minutes in thought about evil or ugly or selfish things? Why harbor evil thoughts towards your former friend or estranged family member? Why spend any of those minutes on lustful indulgences or mindless distractions or ugly feuds? In our modern world, we can get caught in the echo chambers of our own hate. Don't let the news cycle or your Facebook feed or Twitter or TikTok feed dictate what you meditate on. An ability to turn off your phone and your social media and your news programs and your television just might be the new spiritual discipline in our faux-connected world. The ability to worship God through experiencing all that is good in life is a skill that we should all be seeking after. This isn't a sticking your head in the sand, pretending that evil doesn't exist in the world. This is a, a guarding of your heart and your mind against evil by focusing on what is good, by thinking about the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, excellent, and that are worthy of praise. Friends, Paul gives so much good practical direction on how we are to live out our calling as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are to agree, rejoice, and pray, think on beautiful things, and continually be putting all of this into practice in our lives. Being citizens of that perfect heavenly kingdom doesn't make us worthless for this world. You may have heard the saying before, that person is so heavenly-minded that they aren't any earthly good. But this simply isn't true. For Christians who understand our citizenship, Christians as citizens first and foremost of the kingdom of God, we value leaving the world in better shape than we found it. We value beauty and truth and goodness. Consider these words uh, from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most about the next. The conversion of the Roman Empire, the great people who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so effective in this one. May we be people so heavenly-minded here at Renewal that we may be of some earthly good to our neighbors and to our city. We don't have to be crippled by our anxieties and fears. We don't have to be devastated or depressed 
in our adulting. We don't have to get bogged down by disagreement and infighting. We don't have to get wrapped up in the entanglements of this world and become of no earthly good. God has given us weapons to stand against these intrusive narratives that invade our hearts and our minds. We can agree, rejoice, pray, think, and practice our faith so that the God of peace will truly be with us. We can see and experience gospel transformation and renewal in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, amongst our friends and family, because Jesus has changed us from the inside out. He has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light. He can do this for all who believe in him, all who have faith in Jesus. Friends, let us be people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and as a result have an uncommon unity with one another and are people who pray like crazy, people who are thankful for what God has done in our lives, and may we be people who set our minds on all that is good and beautiful around us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's our tradition here at Renewal to take a few quiet moments at the end of the sermon to pray and reflect. So as the worship team uh, comes back forward, I invite you to bow your heads and just to take a few moments and to pray along with me these, these thoughts. I want you to ask yourself, are there people in your life that you know you need to patch things up with? Are there ways that you know that you're not currently living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that you're trying to live as a citizen of your own kingdom? Talk to God about those ways, about those people that you need to reconcile with. Also, consider the, the ways you've allowed prayerlessness to fester into anxiety and feelings of helplessness? What things are you avoiding asking your Heavenly Father for help? In what ways have you allowed your mind to focus on ugly things? Confess ways you've spent the precious moments of your life on the stuff of earth on things that ultimately don't matter, on constant doom scrolling on social accounts or endless hours of self-promotion and self-gratification instead of focusing on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, what's excellent and worthy of praise. Our Father, help us to be people who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to leave our anxieties and our fears with you, to come to you, our good Father, at all times with prayers and supplications and thanksgivings. May we set our minds and our hearts on things above. Lord, help us to be 
empowered by your spirit to serve as your presence in the neighborhoods where we live. Help us to truly believe that you have the power and authority to take us and others out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light as your citizen kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place, living the life that we could not live, and dying in sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves. We worship you and bless your name, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of our faith, you who deserve all praise and glory and majesty now and forever. It's in your precious name that we pray.